and welcome back to another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything with your hosts, Lewis Cleland and Clark Burrow. This week, we're absolutely delighted to welcome another guest onto the show. As always, if you see us on Instagram at A Wee Bit of Everything Podcast or Twitter at Burrow underscore Mr or Cleland Lewis 94, we'd appreciate it if you could give us a wee share or a retweet to help us get the podcast out there so that others can listen as well. This week on the podcast, we've got Professor Kate Wall from the University of Strathclyde, and she's on today to talk to us about all things practitioner inquiry. Kate's work focuses on the development of innovative pedagogies and research methodologies, including visual approaches that facilitate effective talk about learning metacognition. As a former primary teacher, she's interested in the development and exploration of democratic spaces where learners can talk about their experiences of learning. Today on the podcast, Kate is on to discuss the value of practitioner inquiry. She has worked extensively in partnership with teachers of all ages and stages using practitioner inquiry approaches and has a growing interest in how tools with pedagogic and methodological origins can be used to support the development of practice. Kate has used the same ideas when working under a student as researchers or student voice heading with children as young as four. Finally, Kate is interested in methodologies for gathering learners' views on experience, curriculum and learning. We're both really looking forward to this one, therefore I think it's about time we get Kate onto the show. Right, so just before we welcome Kate onto the A Wee Bit of Everything Lewis, um, there might be a few listeners thinking that I wasn't going to appear, but I'm here. It's um, a bit late onto the show this week, but... Yeah, we normally split the introduction, but we do a part each, but it was just my mundane voice over the full introduction there, so um, you're well, back in action, which is good. I asked, you when, I asked you when I came on, and you said you managed it in one go, so well done. So, um, how are you doing, Kate? Welcome to a wee bit of everything, it's great to have you on, um, first time we've met, um, but how's things? Um, good, thank you. I'm juggling just like the rest of you with small children at home and on Zoom for the whole day, but... It's just the way it is at the moment. Um, but yes, good. Yeah, it's going to go on for a bit longer, I'm hearing as well today, in the middle of February. Um, we'll get yeah. through it, I suppose. I'm going to need to get some wine in, I think. That's it, well, that gets you through <laughs> it for sure. That numbs it. <laughs> um, well, thanks, as I said, for joining us today to share your expertise around practice and inquiry, something that I'm very passionate about as well. Um, and I know Lewis has been involved in it throughout the years. Um, and how this can affect the development of teacher practice. So before we go into that side of it, um, could you give us and the listeners a little background information on your teaching career today and then your career within university? Yep, um, so I was, well I still am, I, I would say I still am a primary school teacher. Um, I might not be in the classroom anymore, but I, I still have strong loyalties to practice and, and, and what's going on in classrooms. And I would often say that it doesn't matter how good a theory I've got, if it doesn't work in practice, then that's the most important thing for me. Um, I was a primary teacher for a number of years down in the southwest of England, um, having trained down in Plymouth University. Um, and then in... 2000 in the petrol strike um, I moved up to the northeast of England so the opposite corner of the of England um, and cheaper beer and <laughs> to become a researcher and I moved right. into the university um, at that point so I've been in the university over 20 years now um, first off as a researcher so a research associate um, 
very much at the bid and call of different types of research projects but found my niche in research projects that were done in partnership with teachers and so running networks of teachers across ages and stages and experience levels across England and I ran the biggest network of teacher practitioner inquirers in England for 10 years until the coalition government cut its funding overnight. Um, would, you, would you say it's more popular down, down south even well, at, the moment, at the moment or is it what's it like compared to um, the two? I think if you go back into the early 2000s it was much more popular in England and since the coalition government and the revision of lots of the advice in and, and curriculum guidance in England it has very much been squashed out and so in 2015 I made the decision um, we made the decision to move up to Scotland partly for my career because practitioner inquiry was very much seen as a luxury in England there was there's still pockets of it but it's very much not the norm um, at all and master's level um, learning is not the norm anymore and it was in the early 2000s so that cutting of that funding by the government was very much indicative of a change in um, the landscape I think um, in England and so I see the practitioner inquiry developments in Scotland as much more innovative and much more aligned with a, a, a profession um, mm. to be honest um, so yeah, we moved, we moved north in um, 2015. I've been up in Scotland five years. I've been wonderfully welcomed and having a fun time until the pandemic, mostly. Although still occasionally um, working with teachers up here, but also getting my son into the education system up here and not being tested mm-hmm. in primary schools. So, um, yeah, so it's been, a, it's been a journey, but I'm still a teacher. Always yeah. a teacher. Still I a teacher at heart. You never lose that, um, no. I'm sure. Um, but... We're glad you're enjoying it in Scotland and hopefully that will continue and Lewis remind me to get the name of the place where the cheap beer was so like a wee trip down south <laughs> every now and then. 15 years in Newcastle. In Newcastle, well, is it? I love, New- I love Newcastle. It's a uh-huh. great place. I went there party town. Back. Yeah, totally. Right. Um, so, right, we'll move on to the, some practitioner inquiry questions then. Uh, Kate, thanks for that introduction there on your career. I was doing some reading recently and I noticed a paper that you were involved um, in writing and we talked about the three principles of inquiry and some rather than me going into what they were, what they were about, um, could you maybe elaborate a bit further on what these are and what they mean for our practice? Yeah, so um, from that project that I talked about previously, in that Elaine Hall and I um, have, have done a number of different analyses to explore what was going on in that network and what made it work because it did work and it worked really well and it was very inclusive of um, teachers from preschool, primary, secondary, special ed, FE and HE all talking together and doing an inquiry about what is good learning I suppose metacognition Mm-hmm. Um, and from that we came up with these three principles of inquiry so we saw in that project the first one was is it the principle of autonomy what we saw was that these teachers had to follow their own initiative and their own beliefs about what went on and what was needed for their students in their classroom setting um, so it wouldn't have worked the same if we as a university team had come in and told them what to research and I don't think it works the same when a head teacher tells 
staff in their school what to research. So autonomy, the principle of autonomy comes from this idea that teachers need to be addressing a need, a student need in their classroom context. And that need might be all of the children um, and young people, or it might be one or two, and that's totally up to them. Um, autonomy also covers the kind of evidence they collect. There are many different types of research out there and it could be questionnaires, it could be standardized test scores, but it also could be case studies, it could be participant observation, it could be images, it could, you know, there's, there's a huge range of different evidence that they might collect that um, is, and it's up to them to make the case for this being enough to answer my question. And we can't critique that because it's their inquiry. I mean, we can, we can ask questions about it, but we can't say that's wrong because it's about what was enough evidence to convince you that you have an answer. So autonomy is also about um, what kind of question, how you answer that question, but also when, when does it finish? So when is the end point of inquiry? And I think in schools, we get very caught up in the cycles of the school year. And so many inquiries are artificially starting in August and then finishing in June. And, and, and I think that makes for quite a big, long scale, um, mm -hmm. long term scale, whereas actually many inquiries can only take, take a lesson. <laughs> you know, we, can, we can get it solved. And so we need to be more conscious of variation across that. Right, OK. So that's the first principle, principle of autonomy. And um, the second principle is the principle of disturbance. Um, and it's not that everyone that works with us ends up being a little bit disturbed, although I'm sure some could argue that, but it's about being ready to have your, your thinking challenge. And that might be in the answers that you find for in your own inquiry, but it also might be in the nature and answers that other people are finding. So disturbance, and, and what you often find is that you don't, well, not often, all the time. Inquiry doesn't lead to neat answers. It leads to more inquiry. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be ready for that level of just um, being a bit off kilter, I suppose. Um, it, you're not going to find a neat answer. Education's not full of neat answers. Um, it's one of the reasons that I'm in a job, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. And it's one of the joys of teaching and learning is that, you know, one class is not like the next and yeah, even that class that you think have got sorted is very different next time you teach them mm. <laughs> um, i think that was one of my issues as well going from my like nqt year or even just going from a, a student into my nqt year and i expecting it just to everything just to go seamlessly because you're in a like you're doing lessons with your students at uni um or your classmates, sorry, with your lecturer and there. And obviously we're all like super well behaved and we're doing everything they're asking. And you almost kind of have that expectation to go into, into your school and it's going to be like that. And it's just completely not. And it's just so messy and unpredictable, like you said. Yeah. And, and, and that's a great thing, isn't it? I, and, and it's what keeps us on our toes. It's what keeps us going in every day um, on a certain level. Um, but you've got, and so I think we're felt, we're fed a false security that inquiry and research is about neat generalizations that we can, oh, well, we'll just do this with everybody then because it obviously works. Mm -hmm. Well, when we engage our teacher brain, we know that's not true, you know. But you're, you're also dealing with ob like observations and like subjective experiences like yeah. that, that are kind of hard to measure as well. It's not all facts and figures and 
yeah, that, that's always my favourite uh, part of inquiry was the kind of quality of side of that in my experience. I like to I like getting into the kind of thoughts and thoughts, feelings, and attitudes of students rather than the statistical side of it. But I know there's a, I'm sure you'll maybe touch on this, but there's a there's a case for both certainly. But for PE, it's always it's mostly subjective. And, and, and again, with that principle of a disturbance, if you're going to ask kids what they think, then you've got to be ready to be challenged because if you're going to get them to be authentic and um, give a truthful answer, then they will challenge you to, and, and give you a different perspective. That, so that, disturbance, that principle of disturbance covers many different aspects. But if you're going to engage in inquiry, there will be challenge embedded in that. And some people will run away from that challenge, but other people, um, and, and we shouldn't because it's, implicit in learning if we're not being challenged in learning then we're not learning properly we know mm -hmm. that's teachers but whether we know it in our own learning about professional learning then that's something different yeah so we improve it as you say as well so would you say a lot of your work is um making the person who's doing the practitioner inquiry open-minded or do you kind of make them aware of that situation first do you feel a lot of your work's trying to support them to deal with that I think it's it, yeah, a significant part of it is about just opening people's eyes up to the possibilities of what can be done, um, but also what's possible and, and, and what's not possible and, and what's, um, there's a set of permissions, I suppose, that we talk about and, and these principles are part of that. You know, the fact that things won't work every time the way that you expect them to, well, that's a whole set of permissions about that doesn't stop you trying something out. It doesn't yeah. stop you having a go. It's, it gives you permission to take a risk sometimes, um, to admit that things failed. You know, that, that's quite a big permission um, in an education systems in, across the Western world, to be honest. We are in a success-orientated education system where it's quite difficult as teachers when, who are under a lot of scrutiny to say, actually, that did not work at all. <laughs> that was mm -hmm. horrible. Mm -hmm. but, but that's the nature of the beast you know sometimes things don't work i taught on saturday and it didn't go the way i wanted at all but you know next time it will go better that's a big part of it isn't it yeah yeah um and if people like, like me can't admit that things go wrong then um who how is the mqt or the student teacher going to learn that it's that it's okay to have a horrible lesson sometimes we all have them <laughs> Yeah, no, but I, I, I think I think you put it well there. It's about knowing as well that what's possible and what can go right as well. And having that open that mind, that good mindset towards it. Um, yeah. Things go things will go wrong, but you might uncover something that you never you didn't know that, that might change the practice for the better. And even and, and we learn far more from what goes wrong than what goes right. Um, mm. and 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 no lesson is universally horrible or universally good. You know, there will always be bits and bobs that work for different kids or different groups of kids and 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 i think we need to be more open to that that complexity behind it yeah so so the third principle would be the principle of dialogue and that's the commitment to share and be part of a professional conversation and what we find with practitioner inquiry is it creates a structure that supports teachers in sharing um, what they're doing. I think in Scotland we've become a bit too obsessed with just sharing shiny outcomes. So we share the posters and we share the end point as this in, in quite a pr high pressured situation. And many of the schools I'm working with are um, giving equal priority to the sharing of process. So um, 
this is the question I'm thinking of asking, how do I define the terms? You know, is, does that seem realistic? Um, this is the evidence I'm thinking of collecting. Um, oh, this didn't work. I thought I'd do a questionnaire. It didn't work with that group. They didn't fill it in the way I thought they would, or I'm struggling to fit this in. And so having that conversation, which is incredibly supportive of the inquiry, but it's also about um, checking in, making sense, and also the ethics of it all, you know, because you, you, hopefully your peers will say, really? Is that, you know, that's report writing time. You don't want to be doing your inquiry at that point, or it's soccer season. You're going to be out and about traveling between schools every, you know, every two evenings after school. Is that really when you want to be doing this inquiry as well? Um, so you get that sort of um, reality check from your mates, which is really important. And I think we need to scale back a bit from this sharing of just endpoints. Yeah, I think that, I, I like that one there where you talk about sharing the process. I'm big on that as well. Where uh -huh. It's not just about the outcome, it's about... But I never thought about it that way, like sharing the process rather than just the kind of shiny... Because we're always sharing materials on, on Twitter as well, like the outcome. Mm -hmm. Like, how did it actually get there? So I can maybe do it myself and make my own version that works for my kids. So we worked with Borough Muir High School in Edinburgh and, and they, um, they had um, a commitment to share at multiple points through the year and there was no big event at the end. Um, and what that also allowed for was the fact that cycles did not run the whole year. So it allowed people to be at the sharing process and outcome at, at the same event. So yeah. it sort of yeah. enabled people to take autonomy for the length of time that their cycles took. And so some people were sharing short cycles, but some people were mid a longer cycle. And so there was a much more um, sensitive and subtle sort of, we're just going to have a sharing event. Mm. Um, what you're sharing is completely up to you. Um, and, and they didn't write up in the same way. It was more um, around just bringing a piece of data or a question or something that they could talk to and gave them confidence. Yeah, I think that's really good because in my uh, local authority where I did my probation year, um, I inquired about growth mindset and its impact on pupil motivation. And there was just a sharing event at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would have been good maybe to have a couple building up to it with your group for people that are doing similar parts of research. That would have been useful as well. I should say we have added a fourth one in our book. So we, we took those three and we added the fourth one um, principle, which is the principle of connectivity. And so this is about the doability of practitioner inquiry. And so we believe that if it doesn't connect into other things you're doing, um, and that's teaching and learning, but it's also your professional responsibilities, those different agendas that you might have to follow, um, then it becomes something that will drop off the edge when things get busy. So it's got to, the connectivity into different aspects of your job, um, as well as student need, but also seeing the connection between inquiry professional inquiry and inquiry-based pedagogies in the classroom so there is a mirror effect so teachers who do inquiry are more likely to have inquiry-based pedagogies in their in their classroom and um, teachers who have a voice are more likely to have students who have a voice um, teachers who are metacognitive are more likely to have students who are metacognitive so there is a really strong mirror effect between the two and so we need that principle of connectivity is about um, enhancing the doability of it, but also enhancing the way that we see the process and outcomes as being related to what we do with kids every day. Yeah. I think that's really, I think that's really, you want to say something else? I say that's really interesting how it kind of reflects like your teaching style and um, mm -hmm. 
No, I thought it was uh, yeah, quite I think, fascinating. I think I would, I would always, I would agree with that. And I think that even in football, like if you think about it, the the team always reflects the personality of the coach. I think that's the same in teaching. I would, I could, I could uh, believe that. Um, you know, if you're modelling it, it's almost like the metacognition is part of that as modelling, isn't it? And modelling your thinking processes to the class. So that would then reflect, hopefully. And the people should be taking the ownership and responsibility for that as well, all going well. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a really interesting one in terms of, but in the research methods as well, and the evidence, I mean, I often talk to teachers and they think because they're doing research, they have to go really researchy, academic-y, you know, questionnaires and hard data and numbers. And yet their classroom is philosophy based and you're like well that doesn't fit with the culture of your classroom so you're there's an yeah. there's an invalidity it, it's not valid for you to do something so artificial with a group of kids that expect something very different from you as a teacher mm-hmm. so that that connection is also really important you know yeah, the context it's got to fit mm-hmm. Right, well, Kate, you spoke to us nicely about your, th- well, four principles of um, practitioner inquiry, um, which was really fascinating. But we're going to move on to kind of your experiences with it. And what, how do you think engaging in practitioner inquiry or professional inquiry improves teachers' confidence and pedagogical knowledge? I think um, confidence is a big thing. I definitely see teachers engaging with inquiry as getting the inquiry bug, I suppose. They start to, and the, and the learning bug, they just enjoy, it sets teachers loose a bit to be able to, not indulge, that's the wrong word, but to be an active agent within their classroom space, to be able to make changes, to trust their instincts as to what the students in their context need, um, and to go for it and try it out and see what happens because it's better to try something than not to do anything at all, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so there's that kind of confidence. There's also the confidence to be to manage change a bit better. So I think in an education system which works and moves quite fast, so we have constant policy changes. Slightly less so in Scotland than it is in England, but there's it's, there's a lot of change and we. As teachers, we are often running to catch up with where we think we've got to be. I mean, SQA and exams at the moment is a classic example of we don't know where we're at. And I know the pandemic has, has, has escalated that out of control, but but exam changes is, is something that we're often running to catch up on. Whereas I think practitioner inquiry enables teachers to think, actually, I can be a bit more robust in taking the bits that I like and trying them out and having some evidence to back up my decision making as to why I'm doing X and not Y, whether it's to colleagues, to senior leaders um, or to parents, you know, so it gives a bit more of oomph to, to, to the teacher's sort of repertoire, of, you know, why am I doing this and what am I doing? Um, what I also think it enables, and I often talk with colleagues about the banana rama principle which um elaine and steve higgins who i used to work with at durham university um made up on a train going to talk to some teachers um but the banana rama principle it's not what you do it's the why you do it mm-hmm. um and i think practitioner inquiry enables teachers to be better at talking about why they're doing that thing we're pretty good at talking about what we do in fact if you get a bunch of teachers together then we can talk to the cows come home about what we do. But what we're not very good 
doing is talking about, well, why is that the thing that you're doing? So why is that the way that you organize that group when you're teaching netball? Why is it that you separate those group of kids when you're doing this kind of teaching activity? Not what you're doing, separate the kids. Why is it appropriate? What, you know, so the banana hour and principle, I think practice to inquiry helps teachers to talk about why they operate their classrooms the way they do. Um, what theories they have about how to get lessons started, about how, about assessment, about, you know, really important things that are absolutely integral to our jobs. Um, it helps us to engage with those, those really important aspects and talk about them with confidence and with a bit more in-depth knowledge about how it relates to student learning. Because again, so much of professional learning is detached from student learning. And that's not the right way around. Um, and that's not that's not right. It has to be connected. We have to um, be able to talk with confidence about teaching and learning the pedagogy of our space um, and what we do. Yeah, I think that's um, a super important point you made about re with regards to the why. Like instead of just doing something just for the sake of doing it, or maybe as like a ticky box exercise to meet like a, an improvement plan or something like that to say you've, you've got to do more pr uh, practitioner inquiry. So I think it's a uh, very very important to know to know your why because then the the kind of the how will take care of itself. And I think we can be better at talking to the kids about that. You know, it's not very often actually in professional learning circumstances that we people say, right, today's professional learning in service is about X, Y, and Z because this is why you've got to sit through this hour or whatever. We also don't do that to kids. You know, I am teaching you the anatomy of the jaw in this way because it's the most appropriate way for you to learn. My experience tells me. If you want to disagree, then I'll listen to your, but this is the way we're doing it today. Um, why we need to be more better at talking about it in our with our colleagues but we also need to be better at talking about it with kids and parents i think it's also important what you said about it doesn't have to be like a, a massive scale project that you're doing like it can just be maybe trying something new in your class and getting feedback from a, a few kids it doesn't have to be to be everyone it doesn't need to be something that's excessive workload or because we were in we were involved in one clark and i earlier on i think it was after the first lockdown was it with the, the change leadership oh, project thing the teacher building teacher confidence with yeah. five classroom lessons i was with, with yeah. a building pe teacher confidence with classroom lessons so we got involved in that and um it was literally just trying different weekend and novel learning strategies with the the pupils like active learning strategies in the classroom and things like that um and then just getting feedback just getting like feedback off a few of them to see how, how they found it to see if they enjoyed it to see if it helped them with their learning things like that like it wasn't over and above it was just a case of I, I just made up like a QR code and they just scanned it and then it was onto the wee survey monkey and they could give me feedback on it and see um well I think one, one of the things that is a misconception about research is that there is only one type of proper research and that is large-scale big samples aiming for generalization and statistical significance well that is one type of research actually there is a type of research where it's a case study of one i've examined phds with case studies of one child yeah. you know it allows you to go into a lot less a lot more richness and description you know and, and complexity around that one child and collect a lot more data than doing a sample of a thousand children would do mm -hmm. there are pros and cons of both 
but there are no rules as to what makes a good piece of research. We need both. We need those samples of a thousand, but we also need those research on a case study of one because they give a different lens, a different way of viewing. Um, and it, yeah, different it, aspects. Um, it's, it's really important we have that alternate view that case studies of one or feedback from two or three is, is okay. Mm -hmm. Aye, and it's, I suppose, I guess, it kind of brings it back to that. It's all kind of down to your context as well and the, the pupils that are in front of you. Yep. So that smaller scale one will obviously suit your pupils and suit your teaching, which will obviously have a positive impact for mm -hmm. your setting. Yeah, if you're having problems with Beverly on a Friday afternoon, then a case study of Beverly on a Friday afternoon is what you need to focus <laughs> on. You know, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, mm. that's, that's it. That's everybody's lives. Yeah, exactly. There's less... There's less uh, variables as well I suppose if you're just doing it with one person you've got less of that social variable I'm sure there still are variables with one person but I suppose it could be replicated once you've got that richness well you can we as teachers we replicate all the time on case studies of one I mean Lewis you might hear what Clark's been doing in his rugby lesson and you think oh that's a good idea I'll take that and I'll do it in my lesson yeah. you know we can't gen, statistical generalization is a completely different thing and and you need certain samples and certain um types of research to be able to do that but knowledge of context and exploring the the, the subtleties and complexities of an individual child and how they negotiate through a certain learning experience is equally valid it's not good and and yeah can can be generalized from mm -hmm. I suppose that kind of brings us on nicely to, to our next question then. Um, so practitioner inquiry could sometimes seem like a daunting task for some teachers because of the assumed extra workload and maybe doing it on their own. Could this be something that could be carried out cooperatively with other colleagues? For example, like me and Clark could do something like a joint project and have you seen any exa uh, successful examples of this? Yeah, um, so simple answer, yes. <laughs> yep. but, the, but, but the key thing is about that student need and mm -hmm. keeping that autonomy. So where it doesn't work is when people are artificially put into groups, um, potentially against their will by a very well-meaning senior leader, potentially, and, and, and told to do an inquiry. Then that doesn't work as well because it's not connected to student need. It's not connected to that teacher's professional learning it's somebody else's agenda. So it loses that principle of autonomy. And so therefore they're not as willing to get challenged. They're not as willing to do the work and, and it, people get turned off very quickly. Um, so where it does work is where teachers have come together with a common agenda and, um, and can see how the inquiry benefits themselves and the students in their care. Um, one example at a school um, that I was working with last year, um, it was the physics department were interested in plenaries. And so they sort of came at plenaries together um, and then each of them took a different aspect of plenaries to engage within their inquiry and then we're gonna bring those together. So um, one was looking at what staff thought plenaries were for, one was gonna look at what the lower school s1 to s3 thought plenaries before one was going to look at what the upper school thought plenaries before and one was going to observe some plenaries um, and what they thought worked and then they could come to bring those together to produce a much more comprehensive 
um, sort of answer to their bigger question, which is about how to make plenaries more effective in the physics department. Now, some of that was around physics teachers as well, so scientists and certain <laughs> understandings as to yeah. what science had to be. Um, another example, I was working with Sterling High and they, um, or a couple of years back, and they were actually put into triads. So they were working in threes across departments. And there's something quite interesting about working with colleagues outside of your subject area in a secondary school, um, outside of your um, comfort zone, outside of your mate group, because that automatically challenges you to think outside of the micro. So when you get a group of year four primary teachers together, then we can all identify with what those year fours look like and then and we have common stories that we can compare i'm sure it's the same when p teachers get together but if you get a p teacher and a french teacher and a math teacher together then you start to have to talk at a much meta level about learning rather than the nitty-gritty of your subject area mm -hmm. same thing with year fours if you teachers if you put a year four teacher with an s1 teacher and a, and a early years teacher then you're starting to have to think at a meta level about what's going on so those triads work quite well um but it's got to come down to whether it relates to student need if it doesn't come related to your perception of what you need to know and what you need to learn to improve the student's experience in your classroom then grouping is not appropriate but if, if you choose and it's helpful then why not yes yeah, so it's probably better off doing it with teachers in your own school where you you know the needs of the child or the children as opposed to doing it across schools unless you've got that kind of same identified agenda yeah yeah i, I mean in the network that i ran in england it worked very well and they were across schools and across settings but um i think you need some kind of mediation or mediator to help with that but. yeah i think that's why i loved it so much was because you weren't getting told what, what to do anymore from unis or when you're kind of coming through the university system, you're getting taught everything and in your own place when you're learning, soaking everything up. But for a change, you're taking the autonomy. That's probably, I didn't think about it that way, but after you talked about that principle of autonomy, then that's probably why it's that unknown that I, that I quite enjoyed. But I don't think, I think probably practice inquiry might lend itself to certain individuals, um, maybe down to their own mindset and needs, I suppose. Um, but I think as well, when you were speaking about just earlier on, question three let's move really quickly into question four so i didn't get to say it um was the you know buying into the why i think nowadays you need to tell students why you're doing things and i, I always picked it up from placement from a teacher um to get that buy-in mm -hmm. i think yeah i think you really need to do that a lot rather than just what you're doing um definitely agree with that one i think i think at the moment when t when life is in upheaval it becomes even more important because time with kids is precious and um yeah it that that why becomes much more essential you know i, I don't think teachers have been necessarily because they're in a period of crisis moving online at the moment but why you are teaching that thing live and that thing blended and that thing is pre-recorded is actually really important because actually teachers are thinking really hard about it mm -hmm. and it's actually doing justice to that thought processes that are ongoing behind the teaching and learning we just need to be better at ex being explicit about it so much reflection going on just now, isn't there? About what uh -huh. we, what's right and what's wrong, or what's yeah. better and what's worse for the kids. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I think your your question about do, does practice inquiry suit some people more than others is quite an interesting one. 
um, in that network that I ran, we had some teachers for whom this was the, the obvious next step, but we had some teachers for whom practitioner inquiry was a dirty word. Um, and they're a tough audience, but I think if we can be strong at, with that connection to student need, there's very few teachers, I know there are some, who are not, but most teachers are all for improving student outcomes. If practitioner inquiry is about improving student outcomes, then very few teachers can um, resist that lure as long as we make it something that can be done in the 9 till 3.30, that doesn't become extra, that doesn't sort of take up precious time and is useful, then we can tackle that. Um, it, it's about student outcomes. It has to be about student outcomes. If it's not, then you're, it's quite easy to dismiss. Yeah, that's a core business, core business of any school, I guess, is pupil learning, isn't it? Um, yeah. I think, part of, I don't know about Lewis, or you can add anything here, Kate, like the, the podcast has, I suppose, got an element of professional learning, um, which then might start this practitioner inquiry. That was, that was kind of one, one of the ideas and reasons we started the podcast, was people could take things from the episode that are actionable and then test them out. I suppose, would that be part of practitioner inquiry or the start yeah. of it? Yeah, yeah, I think practitioner inquiry, you learn from all sorts of different places. Once you open your ears to, to the opportunities that are out there, and a podcast is a really good example, but Twitter, um, lots of people say that, so you talk about um, a research engaged teacher is, is engaged in the process of research and, in, and engaged with research more generally. And, and um, I would say that the two work in synergy. What you need is, is teachers who are engaging in a piece of research, but also stop occasionally and look up at what other people have done. Mm -hmm. So you need those two things and they operate, um, yeah, in, in a sort of, in, in a synergy, um, do one and then the other. Yeah. If you just engage in the process of research, constant, 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 without looking up, then it, there is a problem. But also mm -hmm. if you constantly read other stuff and, and don't ever do anything with all that reading and all that knowledge, then there is also a problem. With that engaging with research, lots of people think it has to be academic articles and I would refute that. You know, it could be Twitter, it could be podcasts. There are teachers learn far more and are far more open to learning from other teachers rather than academics. And I'm not saying academics don't have something useful to say; they do. But um, but it's the literature and and that engaging with research can be much broader. Podcasts yeah. included. Yeah, well, that's something we'll continue to do then, Lewis. I'm sure if this podcast will help as well. Get that get that out there, Kate. Um, just before we move on, a kind of generic. Uh, what makes a high quality teacher or remote learning teacher, I suppose, in this current climate? Would, would you have any further comments on practitioner inquiry if there's anyone listening in? And like, how would it get done online, I suppose, if you have a, ever kind of worked with students that's done it remotely? <laughs> I think in a period of change like this, practitioner inquiry is much more likely because we are tr all trying out stuff all of the time because of the changed way of doing things. Now, is that heavy on evidence and heavy on um, sharing? And then probably not. It's just, it's high on survival. <laughs> but but um, I, mean, I did it, I do um, a practitioner inquiry tweet of the week. Um, and, and last Wednesday's was a, about exactly this. If I am not conscious particularly of doing practitioner inquiry at the moment. However, if someone asked me what my practitioner inquiries were during this period of, of 
lockdown, I could give you a couple that I know I could share and I haven't collected evidence consciously, but unconsciously it's there. I know what the students are thinking about it. I've, I've, I've got, I can find the evidence within my pedagogy and to, to answer those inquiry questions. So I think people are doing practitioner inquiry at the moment. Um, it's, it's turned down in volume. It's not extra because we are having to survive. We're having to just cope. But what we have to remember is when we come out of this, we need to do some really careful reflection about what worked and what didn't and what we can keep and what we can put into the archive as not useful. Mm-hmm. But if we're sensible, we will learn from this. I mean, in the university, I think pre-recorded elements of lectures will will stay with us. Um, the the days of teaching to eight hundred in the barony, which is what we used to do for our PGDE in Strathclyde, um, have probably gone because we can pre-record those lectures in ten-minute slots, and that's much more consumable by the students and much more accessible without dragging them all into Glasgow to sit in that drafty hall. Um, I think a big thing for that as well is like the same as the pre-recorded lessons, we can go back and rewind it and pause it. If you, like if they, were, if they didn't make the live session, I think that's a good thing. Yep. Uh, but in terms of what needs to get, seminars on Zoom don't work as well. People don't talk. You don't get to know people in the same way. Those kind of things we will need to go back to face-to-face for. So I think mm-hmm. there's practitioner inquiry going on well, and the good teachers are aware of that, but they are keeping the pressure off themselves, being kind to themselves, their peers and their students, and just surviving at the moment. But yeah. in time, they will be able to look back and be much more strategic. I think even between this lockdown and the previous lockdown, like there's been massive changes in what we've yeah. done. Like, totally. Um, even like in terms that's what I was speaking about on one of the episodes last night like even like the engagement levels and stuff are and how are like monitoring people's engagement and their attendance and just wee simple things like that like it's just a, it's just completely changed since the, the first time I think it's um, you, were, you were saying you were marking for four hours a day Aye, exactly the first lockdown <laughs> Aye. No, no I certainly wasn't that's because uh, I wasn't getting as much work returned but now it's yeah. it's mad yeah I know it's keeping us busy. It's just trying to get the time that we were speaking about that just before you came on, Kate, about how to try to balance recording lessons, marking returns, but it's, it doesn't come in a structured format, whereas normally you get it in the PE department, then you would take it all home at night and do it. Whereas it's coming, pinging in constantly at all different times throughout the day. Welcome <laughs> to our world. <laughs> know, now we know how you feel. Uh-huh. Um, it, it, it's, it's, yeah, we will learn from it and we will move on. And I think that things like deadlines and stuff when you're online and being open to contact all the time is something that we have we've got to i think we'll be putting in something like office hours um as to when we're available my son's school do that at the moment they have time when they're online available and time when they're not Uh, and that seems to be working quite well that's good we could do that Liz. (laughs) absolutely (laughs) (laughs) we'll find something i'm sure uh-huh. Right. So, lastly, then, in your opinion, Kate, what makes a high quality teacher in this current climate? A high quality teacher is someone who can be reflective and strategic. And and um, I think too much reflection is bad for your health. 
you know just you've got to be able to do something with that reflection so the strategic book is equally important and we often don't think about that enough and and in some of the literature reflective and strategic thinking is metacognition so we want and need teachers who are metacognitive about what they do and why they do it so they are aware of their own learning processes but they're also aware of the metacognition and development of the students and at the moment the key thing is is to be kind is to be kind to yourself um, and what you can and can't do and what you've got space for be kind to the students and what they've got capacity for and kind to each other um peers colleagues sometimes teachers are our own worst enemy we 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 show off about how how much work we have to do and it's a it's a badge of honor that i'm so busy i can't fit anything else in that's yeah that's that's not what we need at the minute um it's not what we need any time but that's yeah. not a healthy mindset <laughs> yeah 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 that's really powerful kate thanks for the um rounding off the podcast there strategic and reflective oh that'll be about reflective then strategic <laughs> that sounds um that sounds really good and really helpful for myself and I'm sure Lewis will be the same and yeah. everyone that's listening hopefully took a lot from that. I could have really enjoyed that chat there. So, Kate, with, um, the, with each of our guests, we always finish off the podcast with a wee quick fire round of three questions just for a wee bit of fun at the end of each episode. So, just three quick questions for you then. Number one, if you could have a giant billboard in your hometown or anywhere in the world, what would it say on it? I don't know <laughs> and I think and I think that's probably what I would have it I, I, I don't know I've got lots of questions um, and then <clears throat> the what the the thing that came to me was um, if it was more generally um, there's a philosopher who said for every simple question there is a simple answer that's almost definitely wrong <laughs> love good. it that. So, that. <laughs> There we go. I think, I think I'm on where I don't know it would be quite funny to be followed yeah. up by and need to do some practice and inquiry on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Find <Wait>. out. <laughs> Number two, what people or books have had the greatest influence on your life? So I think it's people. Um, books, I, I, read a, I read a lot. Um, work stuff, but also um, dragons and magic, not particularly influential, but just takes me away from the world. Yeah. Um, but people are probably the greatest influence. I am privileged to have been a primary teacher. I, I, my classes, the colleagues that I taught with down in the southwest of England, stay with me and are echoed in what I try and do now. Um, being a parent has made a massive difference to my outlook, particularly on early years practitioners. Um, <clears throat> and then it's the teachers who let me into their world. So mm. I, I couldn't do what I do now without having those connections and those partnerships with teachers who are willing to just spend five minutes talking about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky in what I do. Love that. And just off the bat then, how, how much do you think becoming a parent changed how you taught? Um, wow. wow, that's really hard. Great, great I, I think it's, it's <laughs> and particularly when I'm homeschooling at the moment, <clears throat> he doesn't listen to a thing I say. So... <laughs> Um, that's always the same but yeah yeah and I did know that but it's been cemented well and truly um I think that um oh, I don't know it's really hard I don't know sorry that's all right that's fine I just thought I would ask like if you would have a different outlook on it like you're not having a, a child uh, before and then 
having a child, like realizing like maybe the the importance of their education and things like that. But I wasn't sure if there was like yeah, a, if you had a mindset shift in it. But it's it's fine. I can put you on the spot I, with that one. I think I think that one of the things that has changed is how I treat teachers who are also parents. Mm-hmm. So I was a late parent. Um, I'm yeah. I'm going to be one of the first to get the vaccine in the primary school playground. Parents, so that's one <laughs> of my successes in life. Um, but I never understood my colleagues when I was a teacher. I mean, I was a teacher at 21, 22, and um, what they were doing going home to kids as well as <laughs> dealing with 30 kids in class every day. And similarly, now I um, educate and work with teachers. Those parents who are also teachers, it's tough. It's tough. So there's a, there's a level of sympathy. How, mm. I run, how I run my classrooms, maybe not so much, but um, yeah. I think that's a good point for any like leaders out there or principal teachers, like having that empathy for how your colleagues might be feeling if you have kids. Because I know, if, like, I wouldn't probably have had that insight if you didn't tell me. Like, how I suppose you'll never really know what it's like until you have a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, sorry for putting you on the spot there, and we will we'll finish off with our final one then. So, what advice would you give to a teacher thinking of taking the first step to inquire about an aspect of their practice? Um, trust your instincts trust your understanding of your classroom and the kids in your care address the needs that you see for them um, try and keep it in your 9 till 3.15 or 3.30 you know so that you are collecting and using data that doesn't add to your workload and have a commitment to share and that's not sharing with the whole local authority but sharing with at least a couple of friendly faces that are in the corridor next door to you. And stick to the four principles. Yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course. No, but... and, and cite me regularly. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. That um, rounds us off nicely for um, today's episode. So just want to thank you for giving up your time to come on and share your experiences with us. Um, we're really grateful for it. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I think um, we'll be in touch if me and Liz decide to do any practitioner inquiry. Um, got a few ideas in my head from listening to this. So we might be in touch again to annoy you. Um, <laughs> get some guidance. Keep an eye on that um, practitioner inquiry tip of the week. I do that every Wednesday. Um, I'll, I'll that that. That's quite a useful point to go to. It's what comes out of my brain, usually based on the conversations I've had with teachers that week. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Kate. That was just really insightful and really enjoyed uh, talking tonight. Um, so enjoy the rest of your um, evening. Well, another week, another podcast, another takeaway message, or two takeaway messages. What were your key takeaway messages from tonight's um, episode on practitioner inquiry, Clark? Oh, you're right, another week, another episode, another good conversation with, with Kate. Really enjoyed it, something different, something outside PE, and more of a sort of generic education. So my uh, takeaway message for this would be around her comment on number five, when we, we asked her, in your opinion, which... What makes a high quality teacher? She spoke about being reflective and then strategic. And I like how she followed it up with being strategic because it's really reflective on something, picking something out that you think you could use or you could do better. Um, depending on whether you're watching somebody, then you would take it. Or if it's just reflective in your own practice, then you would try and improve it. And then being strategic about it, taking that information and then following it up with action uh, and then reflecting again and then being strategic again so it's just like a cycle i like that um 
really powerful and resonated with me. So seems like you're just taking one thing and reflecting on that one thing. That's that's what I kind of took from it. Like that's yeah. ma- manageable. I just said I make it manageable. Mm-hmm. That's it. Because she, she also said that it gets it's not good for your health to reflect too much, because um, that can also be a burden for you. Because you're then getting too you're over over scrutinising. So it's just getting mm-hmm. getting that balance, I suppose. And uh, we hope that the whole vision behind the podcast is people can take actionable strategies away from the podcasts, from the guests, um, certainly not for us too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then take it away, action it in your class, whether it's remotely or in, or, in, or in practice, and then see how it goes, reflect and be strategic. So thanks, Kate, for sharing that. What would your key takeaway message be, Mr. Cleland? I think something that resonated with me was that doing the practitioner inquiry isn't you're not supposed to find a neat answer. I think that's how Kate put it. It's not supposed to just be a linear process. It's going to lead to more questions, and it's just like it's almost like a kind of continual process. It's never, it's never done. It's never, it's never neat answers that you find. And I think that's also important when you're going from being a student teacher into your NQT year or into your um, first year as a fully qualified teacher. Like it's never like learning and teaching isn't a linear process. It's it's messy. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes you think you've clicked. Others you think this isn't for me. Um, and I think that was a, a really good message to to put about practitioner inquiry as well. Because I think people just go looking for the facts, the figures and these really straightforward answers, but it's actually not the case. It's um, Often it's just subjective experiences which are um, appropriate to your context or relevant to your context, sorry. Um, so I, I, thought, I thought that was a, a good message. I think as teachers we can be quite guilty or not even just teachers like humans like putting a judgment on things and a meaning on it and just mm-hmm. we always do that but I sometimes you say that you're never I think it comes down to your mindset though like you're quite like that you're, you always want to get better and I think it comes down to this practice inquiry comes down to the mindset like you're, you're never just going to find an answer and then that's it it's just a continual it's a continually investigating and it's dynamic it's always changing and I think that will suit certain individuals, as I said earlier in the podcast, um, who like to be open-minded and, you know, see new ways of doing things. I don't know yeah, if that I, makes sense. No, it totally does. And I think once you once you do it first and you try something um, new, then, um, like Kate says, you get you almost get a bug for it. If you get mm-hmm. if you try something new and it doesn't work the first time, doesn't mean you, you stop trying. You go and try something else because one of those times that you try it, something's going to click. And it's mm-hmm. going to change the way you do something, and it's it's actually quite uh it's quite motivating when something like that happens. I and for me, I for me an example was um, trying that football sport education unit with my one of my S three classes, and like albeit only managed to do it for like a few weeks because the the terrible weather started coming in, but the like the 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 behaviour shift in the class that I was teaching was just amazing like I couldn't believe what I was seeing like them actually leading their own sessions and things like that it was absolutely fantastic and that was all down to just trying something just going and trying it something I hadn't even um, tried in any of my with any of my classes before um, and that one time it worked so it's something I will feel confident with going forward I'll be able to reflect on it make it that wee bit better the next time and try it out with different sports and different year groups so mm-hmm. but if you think about that whole process just when you're talking there Great point, right? If you think about the whole process, it was like we networked, spoke to Chris Crookston and Cameron Stewart. They came on the podcast. We, you picked it up from them. You delivered it to your class, sport education. You then told me about it in a conversation on the way home. You sent it to me. I tried it. 
they've passed on to people in my department, and then as at the end of the day, it's, for, it's for improving, improving people outcomes, and that's what Kate said. The job right, just sort of snowballs, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So, I, if we never had that conversation, when would it have? When would we have tried that? Out? Do you know what I mean? It just kind of gives us. It gives, sometimes it just gives you the motivation to go and to go and try something and and do it. But I. If it comes down to you then taking the action, doesn't it? Like no, you need to take... pack up pack up stuff, but they don't really be strategic with it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Definitely. That's anyway. Dinner time. Dinner time. Uh, what are you having? Hey, I don't know. What's it what day is it Tuesday? Don't have a fish fish on a Tuesday. Certain, I think it's certain days, eh? <laughs> I know we had a we had bean chili last night, gone for a veggie option, it was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I, think it's it's the night, then. I think it's fish. You know, we've got a veggie option two days in a row, no, you? No, I've got a seafood option. Oh, my pesky. dad, see what you can rustle up for me. <laughs> a rustler burger? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> right, thanks again for listening to another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. These conversations are just absolutely outstanding. We're, we're really enjoying it. So we'll make it continue for ourselves and hopefully it's, as we say, having an impact on you and the department and the people around about you. Until next week, um, have a fantastic week online. Take a break from the screen time because it really is important for our health and well-being. At the end of the day, we're in this together. Have a great week. Cheers. Bye.